you think I would have give up my hard-earned rest to sit in front of a TV screen watching Doctor Who? Gaze at the screen all day long and do your eyes in. Yeah, I saw something about that on the news the other night. Law of the Jungle, though, right? Survival of the fittest. I mean, all these other podcasts are releasing episodes, aren't they? Where do you think we'd be if we didn't keep going? Down the plug-hole. Down the plug-hole without a paddle. What do you think the listeners prefer? What do you mean? Well, all these brands of podcast. What do you think our Hoovian friends find particularly irresistible? If you believe the hosts, this one is the fourth best Doctor Who podcast out there. And uh, this one comes from the three who rule. Whereas this one encourages its listeners to keep punching. Presumably to help Phil Morris with his terrible wind problem. Yeah, I've heard about that. It's always blowing in the wrong direction. All I know is, most fans seem to like the Missing Episodes podcast. Yeah, I hear the early episodes were particularly good. Getting ahead. It's the law of the jungle, isn't it? <laughs> Listen to this. There are these two film collectors in a pub, right? Oh, you've got another story for us, haven't you? Go on then, go on. They get a message that another collector they know is about to draw his last breath. Ah, poor guy. One of them doesn't say anything. He just starts putting on his running shoes. And the other collector turns to him and says, What are you doing? You can't run there fast enough to see him before he dies. First collector turns to him and says, I don't have to outrun death. (laughs) I don't get it. Oh. Uh, he doesn't have to outrun death, only his friend. That way he gets there first and helps himself to the pick of the spoils. Law of the jungle. Oh yeah, yeah, very clever. Yes, very clever, if you don't mind losing your friendship. I wish I'd just share them with everyone. Welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed, that sketch, to make something who. Hello, I'm Richard and we're back with Something Who podcast episode 78, where uniquely across the original and new series, we discuss a couple of Doctor Who stories from the same writer. Mm. First, we'll look at Seventh Doctor Story Survival from Season 26. And after that, we'll examine Twelfth Doctor Tale, The Eaters of Light from Series 10. And with me to decide whether these stories feel like a natural selection, I have the usual team. So let's start with our favourite storyteller and part-time thespian, Paul. (laughs) Thank you very much. I've got a new introduction. Hurrah. And uh, next up, it's science and astronomy writer, Giles. Evening, I've got an old introduction. (laughs) And finally, it's something who's own legal expert, Simon. Hello, Richard. Hello, everyone. Is there there rumour true this is going to be the Rona and Munro's laughing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, 
how has everyone been? I mean, it's, it, it, although uh, in, in, out in podcast land, I guess it's 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 um, probably about four weeks since we were last doing something, but it's probably about six or seven weeks since we've been together. You don't know how long it's going to be until you edit this one. That's true. Could be longer. <laughs> I remember it was three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, all right. Busy, busy. But, uh... mm. I guess we can, we can probably tie the recording of this one to the fact that it's actually been nice weather for the last week and a half, which is uh, almost certainly unique in uh, British history. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Got a new king, haven't we? Yeah, it's, it's it's he's not that new. He's about a month old now. Yeah, yeah, but the coron- <laughs> you're right. The coronation has happened in the, in the in the middle as well. We should have done one about a sword, shouldn't we? That would have been very. Um... Ah. Why would hang on? Oh no, we've done Androids of Tower, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that would have been. Is there a coronation one in the new series? Well, there's the um, thing magic, isn't there? The, the the idiot's lantern. We've already done that one as well. Yeah, true. Yeah, that would have been a good old... If you can hang around long enough, I believe Big Finish will be releasing one of their acclaimed audio novels range, um, possibly later oh. this year, maybe next year, which which includes The Coronation. Ooh, may or may not be okay. set in 1901. Uh-huh. It may or may not have everyone's favourite sidekicks present at that illustrious inauguration. I, I don't know, just a okay. rumour I heard on the grapevine. Hmm. <laughs> We'll we'll certainly keep our our ears pricked for that one. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a sucker for anything. Oh, do you know what? I probably shouldn't have said all that. No. Um, <laughs> can you cut before I mentioned? Because that's probably yes. going to get me into trouble. Sorry. Or you could just uh, bleep. Can leave all this in and bleep bleep out the character names. <laughs> bleep the character. <laughs> beep and beep. Oh, I love beep and beep. They're my favourite characters from. Oh, beep. <laughs> okay, well, you know, before we before we get um, lost in all of that, I guess we should probably start discussing the stories tonight. Let's kick off with survival, written unsurprisingly by Rona Munro. Since, since they both are, and directed by Alan Waring of Greatest Show in the Galaxy and Ghostlight fame, as well as this. So I'm, I'm going to diverge, I guess, from my usual start to this, which is when I say that I haven't watched it since original broadcast, because I'm not entirely convinced I saw it all on original broadcast. I, I've got strong memories of episodes one and three, <gasps> and, I've, and I have a feeling that my I was relying on my parents to do the recording while I was away at university. And somewhere along the line, episode two may have gone down the drain, <laughs> which is probably why it never made an awful lot of sense to me uh, originally. But anyway, on this occasion, I watched it on a Sunday morning, which I suppose is appropriate, given that mm. uh, it's Sunday in Perivale, and I saw the whole thing. So there we go. And it still makes no sense. No, I was wondering if that was going to be the punchline. <laughs> <laughs> Did it all click into place? Well, we'll come well, to that. Well, basically, if you missed episode two, you missed um, a big chunk of the action. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. On, on, on the on the on the planet, didn't it? Yeah. Mm. It, 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 spoilers. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. This one was known in our house as Doctor Who Does Thundercats. Ah. Oh. <laughs> I I remember I I caught the first ten minutes when it was broadcast, and that that I I gave up sadly. Oh. So, uh, 
Oh, good lord! What, what did you thought of thought of the rest of season twenty six? I I actually got my opinion complete. I actually got to meet Sylvester McCoy, and I, he was a lovely fellow. So I went back and watched it properly again, uh-huh. yeah. and it's far more enjoyable now having met met him. What? what you you watched it before this this podcast or? I saw I saw the first ten minutes of episode one and had to, I I gave up because yeah. I thought it was shocking and I oh it's like therapy I'd fallen out of love no, with I, Doctor I, Who at I, that point but I'm trying I to work out when out. He, when he went Sylvester and then went back and watched it though um, he came to we used to have we used to have occasional Doctor Who conventions in in uh, here in Milton Keynes ah so not last and week so old, we're not talking about right. no 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 no. So uh, I went back and watched it on. I went back and watched it on DVD a few years ago. Okay. And then, mm-hmm. of course, I did my research for this podcast and watched it again um, mm-hmm. over the weekend. And it was far, far better than I thought it was going to be. I just, I just couldn't watch it the first time around. I was again. I was like Richard. I was at university. The only way you could watch it is was in a common room in front of lots <laughs> of people. And uh, no, it didn't work for me to start with. And much as I loved Hale and Pace at the time. That that scene in the in the corner shop, no, that was it. And the, <laughs> the terrible animatronic cat as well. Oh, uh, the cat. That mm. was uh, that was it. And uh, I turned my back and I dipped in again. And the freaky red sky was was good. The cheetah people I sort of good got, but it just looked very very. It looked at the time it looked very very cheap. And I don't know what it was with 1980s te- television. They used to get. Jeremy Actor and Jemima Actor and tell them to look straight and put on a leather jacket and they just didn't look convincing as teenagers to me. So it was just it was just the final nail in the coffin really. And then and then I d- did people know at the time it was going to be cancelled and this was the last show or did that only come no. out afterwards? Well, I, I guess the answer is that JNT and Cartmel knew, but nobody else, I think. Because mm. they yeah. But we'll come to. I guess we'll come to that. But yeah. Yes. So yeah. So so so, so it's your fault. The series was cancelled, Simon. <laughs> it was. Yeah. <laughs> Turned off the television. Basically, you you gone off it, and they they gave up in yeah. Giles, any any happy memories? Uh, I was also yeah. I'm going to be yeah. I was also at university. I must have just started. Good, great. It was my first um first term there, so I was catching up, and yeah, I must have managed to see it. I had a pokey little black and white telly with a built-in tape recorder that may have featured in this um yeah built-in tape recorders in, in tellies now there's a wacky idea but which may have featured in this podcast before now with me telling stories of audio tapes and things i think i managed to watch watch all of it at the time certainly saw it on vhs you know later hmm. yeah i don't know maybe maybe watching it in black and white which I think I would have. Maybe that maybe that helped. Maybe I didn't um maybe I wasn't quite so um yeah, on a whatever the diameter of the screen, probably a ten inch screen or something like that. Maybe that slightly was more forgiving mm-hmm. of <laughs> uh of some of the visual aspects of it. But um No, I've always been I've always been quite fond of it, but it's always been a bit of a bit of an also ran in season twenty six for me compared to when it's got Ghost Light and Fenric. Hmm. Yeah, that's sort of right there. But I've come to appreciate it a lot more, as we'll yeah, probably come on to. Well, I 
I'm just going to jump straight to the end. I really liked it at the time, but I was on a bit of a... Yes, I was back in love with Doctor Who again by this point. I'd gone through the... I've been following the prevailing fashion. I wasn't keen on most of season 24. I followed <laughs> most of other self-important teenagers and thinking, oh, this is much better with season 25. And then I, I find much more to love about 24 now, as we've discussed. But yes, by 26, I really thought something special was going on. I was... <laughs> I, was, I was the editor of the Doctor Who Dover Group newsletter for oh. a small group of like-minded idiots at school, and I was passing the news on to them, which we, as we got it from official and unofficial sources. And when I heard that Alan Waring was back, I was so tedious. I was really into who was writing and who was directing and everything. And when I heard Alan Waring was back, I thought this is going to be fantastic. Because I was a big fan of his work on Great Show in the Galaxy. Hmm. I thought he did a superb job on all three of his stories and in very different ways. I mean, mastering both studio, completely studio-bound story with Ghostlight and a completely location-centred one here with two completely different technologies. Lots of handheld camera here as against perfect use of the old-fashioned studio setup. Uh, I got a bit off the point. Season 26, fantastic. Every story has its own feel. They all feel like Cartmel, Doctor Who but they all have a very strong authorial voice. I didn't feel like this was a letdown after Curse of Femeric and Ghostlight. I thought it ended on a high. It's completely demented. But most of the things mm. that other people don't like about it have never really bothered me for some, some reason. But we can, get, we can get on to that. So here we are, whatever it is, 34 years later. <laughs> I haven't changed my opinions at all, which either means... I was extremely mature at the time, or I'm still an adolescent now. I don't know. <laughs> I think you were you were you were just very lucky or intuitive, Paul, and you, you got it straight away. So that's a I think that's a good thing, because it took me thirty plus years to <laughs> to sit there and I and enjoy it this time around. It's a very clever, very clever story. Having been rude about Thundercats, I actually like seeing the cheetah people on horses. It reminded me of Planet of the Apes a bit. I always found that very iconic, seeing an ape riding a horse. And again, with the, the cheetah people again, you have an utterly malevolent and evil master as well, mm -hmm. which is always very good in my book. Having looked again at Sylvester McCoy and his portrayal of the Doctor, he's, he's excellent in Series 26, and he's excellent throughout, I think. When I first saw him, I thought, hey, this is the guy I used to see in Vision on and in yeah. Tiswas. What's he doing being the Doctor? Because... Back then, you didn't have the internet, things like that, to do the research. And had I been able to do the research, I'd have realised that John Pertwee started off as a comedian and became a very good doctor. And um, I think Sylvester McCoy was as well. And Paul's right, there's a there's an underlying darkness and a, and a malevolence as well to McCoy's doctor as well. He was just to be ex manipulating and um, exploiting yeah. Ace in a way. Um, and, uh, yeah, I got I got it much years much later on. There are, yes, I mean they wanted to bring the mystery back to him, and and at one peak he can be quite dark and manipulative. Uh, sorry, at one extreme, but I, I think this is down almost at the other side of it. He's still mysterious. We don't know what he's up to. In the he clearly knows more than we do, but um, it it manifests itself in a lot of buggering about, uh, crawling around with cat food, which. I, I still, <laughs> rather than um, setting elaborate traps for his young friend Ace to fall into, 
But it's all the same character, and I found it quite delightful. Anyone who's actually owned a cat would know that you stay miles away from cat food. <laughs> you don't go anywhere near it unless you absolutely have to. Something's just occurred to me with that, um, talking about that cat food scene, which is completely passing me by, of course, but um, it's very similar to the moon base, where the Doctor's going around and uh, taking samples from people's shoes or um, whatever he's doing. And suddenly... Just look. Yeah, but I mean, that's yeah. the thread that runs through the character, isn't it? Mm-hmm. He does things his yeah. way and doesn't really care what people... Mm. So, it's not that he doesn't care what people think about him, but he, uh, that is at its best. I think mm-hmm. he is beyond that. He doesn't think about how he appears because he is, he's just different. And without getting ahead of ourselves, I'm not as keen on the characterization of the Doctor in the second story we'll be looking at today. A lot of that, that unforced, eccentric charm and whimsy is absent in that era of the show but uh, we'll come on to that mm. i definitely saw some of what you were talking about earlier simon in terms of the so-called kids or or you know young adults seem quite they maybe not that young i mean the, the 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 bloke who's washing his car looks about 30 maybe maybe it's that slightly over the top uh, and a lot of aces friends look <laughs> mid twenties at the uh, at least, and and actually Sophie looks suddenly a lot older in this, but that actually works because I guess you, you're supposed to see her as 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 awakening in this series, in uh, and particularly in this story. So, yeah, I mean, if they if they had actually cast a lot of seventeen year olds to stand around Sophie to be with the best one in the world, it wouldn't have looked yeah. quite right, would it? You're even right. though that's yeah. even though you're right, it is a typical BBC thing of the time. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I feel like Sergeant Patterson is a bit of a Grange Hill kind of a character, with a bit of sort of Grange Hill type acting. But I mean, it it doesn't detract too much from it. I can sort of see why, if you're only watching the first ten minutes of it, there's enough of there's enough of that kind of sort of thing in it that you could just think, oh, you know, it's not it's just not cool enough. I'm 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 off for a beer or something. But I think if you if you kind of get past that then there's there's a lot to like about it i'll tell you why i don't think any of that matters in this story because it's not like it's aim failing in what it's setting out to achieve it's not trying to be very gr- uh, realistic and gritty no. like grange <laughs> i mean if we think <laughs> <laughs> or or eastenders or one of those things it's um it's there's a air of unreality unreality that pervades the whole mm. story from the beginning mm. yeah. Yeah. in a in a good way it can tell us things about the real world without slavishly attempting to reproduce the real world, I think. Mm. So there's a heightened nature to the characters and to the dialogue. Mm. And so, mm. for me, that always made it easier to forgive the fact that these aren't quite like any real young people. Look, that was always going to be a problem because um, for all her great qualities, Ace was a slightly peculiar character from the very beginning, wasn't she? <laughs> yes. She was unreal. And I imagine yeah. it's because for all that Ian Briggs says that the personality of Ace was based on real young people he knew. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that's right. But the background he gives her completely undercuts that, yeah. I think. Mm. Makes us, gives a slight air of pantomime, which they then, they then spend the next couple of years rapidly clawing back from. So, yes, mm. but when we finally see her in the real world, and we've seen her in various historical periods of the real world, but now we're back mm. where she came from. So with all that we learned about her and all the work 
that they've done and Sophie's done, the writers have done to make her a bit more three-dimensional. Mm. On the other hand, we have to believe that this is the world that the slightly, the slightly unlikely teenager, Dorothy Ace McShane, came from. Mm. So I think it, everyone around her has to be similarly larger than life and mm. archetypal. I feel uh, it's interesting. I'm not trying to make excuses for it. It sounds mm -hmm. like I am, yeah. but I don't think it leads them. Mm. It does work as a very nice you know, accidental coda to the series. It, it feels like oh, it's it's at some point I need to go back and watch Battlefield because Battlefield really feels like the the odd one out because you've got the did what did as Carmel said or they wanted to do like not quite past, present, and future Ace, but like deal with her various traumas. And all issues, but right. it, it does feel like oh, they they obviously they put it, put her through the mill in certainly the preceding two stories, and then in this one, it's funny that they just at the moment when the the character really has changed, and it's it's interesting that the performance. I love Sophie, but there is a certain OTTness about her performance yeah. in in general as Ace. You know, there's a there is always that certain element of school kids tv about it which continues up and you know up until you know we've still got that going on in Fenwick you know with the the infamous seduction scene and things like that which are just don't quite hit the mark and this one you know it just feels like okay they've changed her but she's absolutely I was just surprised by how grounded and having not seen this for a good few years I guess I was just surprised to come back and see to my mind how grounded and realistic the character was and that mm. the the, just the the way she was playing the lines was underplayed, and she you know she had some nice witty comebacks to you know the the classic one that you know the, do you have any normal friends or whatever the, whatever the line is <laughs> when she says to the doctor you know, you know people who aren't evil geniuses or do you know any normal people but it's just it just feels like it's very nicely judged and it's interesting that they that they did this and it hap it happened to end up being the end of the end of the conclusion of the series without any planning, but it's a nice, it does feel like it's a good conclusion, coda to to the story. And it's funny that they, just at the point where they've changed the character and, and made her much more mature, it's the point where they bring her back to supposedly the world that she came from. I know the whole series is completely out of order, but it was always going to be after, even if this wasn't last, it was after she's, they relieved her of her angst, right? So, Good question. What was the... Yeah. I, th I feel like it was originally Curse of Fenwick first and Ghostlight last. Mm. Unless I'm just getting confused with the recording order. Maybe... Yeah, maybe that's we'll, the no. that they... Yeah. No, I'm gonna, maybe it was always going to end with this, but it has to be... The only reason I wasn't sure, I would have thought that it was always ending with Survivor, except for the fact that when Patterson meets Ace and says, oh yeah, the police let you go with a warning, or whatever it is he says... I feel like that's supposed to come before Ghostlight, before we find out what it was she did, yeah. what illegal thing she did. I, f I do think it was supposed to end with Ghostlight this series. Anyway, the point is, it's it after Fenric, that's the important thing. So she's got mm, a yes. system, and now she can... And it works brilliantly at the end with her, because it's symbolically her mastering her problems by being had to go back home again. Back home, um, Shen, the mother yes. she hates, and all that malarkey. <laughs> um, mother, you hate. Yeah, and it's nice that they don't 
They didn't really bring any of that up, did they? According to Sean Sullivan, it was always planned to be the fourth, the last one to air. Okay, okay. So, I was thinking, and we keep dancing around here, but I'll say it now anyway. At the end, we all know that Mr. Cartmore wrote that nice little monologue for, for Spoons yeah. very late in the day when they knew it wasn't coming back. But it's nice, it's, it's good luck that, that shot carries on long enough to enable yes. them to put it over. <laughs> yeah. Was they were they just going to have half a minute of them wandering off to the horizon with, yeah. with no dialogue originally? Mm. Somebody tell me, I don't understand. Unless it's you know, I've seen fields of green or something like that, <laughs> like like Hitchhiker's Guide. I don't know. It's hard to know. Yeah, good question. He's a serendipity up there with the end of Black Adder goes forth, mm. in my opinion. Maybe they just locked off the shot and said, keep, "Keep on walking away into the." Yeah, it's probably an outtake version where they carry on walking for about 40 minutes and then <laughs> they turn yeah, around, the crew just, are all creased mm. up, all laughing. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh dear. All wearing eye patches. <laughs> so, so mm. Simon, you, you, you said you watched Hail and Pace the first time and it was, it was caused to make you switch off. How did, how did you respond to seeing Hail and Pace this time around? Uh, the same, really. It, I mean, we knew we knew that audience figures were declining, and it, they seemed to sort of roll out someone like Hale and Pace or Ken Dodd or someone like that mm. to try and pump things up. And they they didn't really play them to their to their strengths. But I'll tell you what would have had me hooked, Richard. It was you, you mentioned Grange Hill. If only they'd have cast Bullet Baxter as the fitness <laughs> instructor. Yeah, that, that yeah. Would have been superb. I don't know that if it's Julian Holloway, but is, isn't Julian Holloway playing completely against type here? I, I seem to remember people commenting on that he was another one of those unusual castings that there was a lot of in this era. Well, he'd done carry, he done carry on some things, hadn't he? I don't know. Filmography. He's in, he's in Up the Kyber. I haven't done any research, but the other thing I remember about his character is that he was originally supposed to be a policeman, wasn't he? And um, somebody decided mm. that you can't show a policeman being a bit of a bastard. Mm. So they made him... Is that Good right? Lord. Yeah, it's like the Sweeney never happened, or Zed Cars, or... Mm. You never see policemen being you-know-whats. Giles is looking shell-shocked. What's he discovered? I'm sorry, I've just, I've just discovered who Julian Holloway is in carrying on up the Kyber. Sergeant Major? So, the, no, no not the past. You know, Sid is Sid's the governor, whatever. Yeah, you know, the governor always, general. Always. Yeah, he's got the aide de camp, who's the one that invites all the all the young ladies in for tiffin. No yeah, right. You, you know that famous sequence when when all the all of Randy Lowell's wives are coming to him <laughs> to make amends for the fact that, that Randy Lowell has carried off Joan Sims. He's the aide de camp. Who's yeah? Who has to uh, defend Sid in that in that sequence? It looks completely yeah, yeah, very much against type. Put it that way. Hey, well, guess what? I'm going to watch tomorrow night. Yeah, mm-hmm. quite. <laughs> Grange Hill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the name Patterson sounds Scottish. I mean, I wonder whether Rona Monroe's deliberately put a Scottish character in there, or whether it's just sort of accidental. Or... Mm. Well, based on all her other work, with which I'm intimately familiar, she just can't help herself. So, yeah, presumably. Mm. Mm. Or not. Mm. Now, she only turns out when there's a Scottish doctor as well. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Have you seen her James plays? 
Funnily enough, no. I haven't, unfortunately. Go on, then. They're three historical plays, and if you mm. ever get to see them all in one day, which is the only way to see them, mm. I can hardly recommend it. You won't. Mm. That ship has sailed. Ah. I did go and see I did go and see Little Eagles, which was um, about the cosmonauts, the first cosmonauts, um, a few years ago, and that was very good. So the Jameses were the were the ones before. Well, yeah, there was Kings of Scotland, but not of England. Yes, yes. I learned so much about Scottish history that day. Nine hours in the Marlowe Theatre, and then I forgot it all. But it was greater. <laughs> yeah, no. Okay. I didn't even enjoy the plays. It was just the challenge, the endure. You know, I like a challenge. It was the endurance. <laughs> simply three plays in a day. That reminds me of doing the Henry Henry the Sixth triple bill. Well, you should globe. say that. We're, this, we're doing that next year at the Canterbury Shakespeare Festival. All three, oh, okay. all right. Henrys in a day. But yes, carry on. It was what they what they referred to in in Clause of Axos as, as freak freak weather conditions as well. <laughs> <laughs> that we went from went from it bucketing down to it absolutely searing hot to his um being. Very chilly nights by the time we got to Henry the Sixth Part Three, and that was so. That was a good endurance test, and I was a grounding for that. So, so that was a good seven hours on my feet, seven or eight hours. Hmm. Sorry, complete side side hmm. track there. So, does it feel like it's written by a playwright? Even a young burgeoning playwright. The dialogue. I, I, you must have noticed that the dialogue is um, at time at its best quite. Idiosyncratic, mm. and of course the, the use of theme here. Every part mm. of the plot, every character, every meaning, every apparently irrelevant little exchange is all tied in to the mm. central theme. The misuse of the phrase "survivor of the fittest," but we'll let that mm. pass. If we take it here in this literal sense, then it is all in service of that one idea. And I don't mm. think there's ever been another Doctor Who story that's been quite that disciplined in telling a silly adventure story where every component it's a very playwriting approach i mean you know, from the stuff i've read about playwriting they always say you take you just take one idea and come at it from all yep. come at it from all angles so really everybody is from hail and pace as the apparently mm. relevant shopkeepers yeah. to the woman at the end going about cats it's what does she mm. say the owners want them but can they keep them under control which sums mm. up the whole story, gives Spoons the chance to say, Ah, uh, we try. <laughs> from, from, soup, from soup to nuts, it's all... Mm. And it's it's quite appropriate that it is a, you know, given that there's bits of Thatcherite allegory in there, aren't there? Like, it's um, how we go at that. It's, it's appropriate enough that it is a misinterpretation of survival of the fittest. Cartmel mandated that, didn't he? Mm. They don't let people write for the programme if they promise to... Have a dig at Thatch. <laughs> Mrs. Thatch. Oh, well, when Midge goes all Ben Elton for his... Um, <laughs> he's trying to shoot. Yeah. Comes into the club. Mrs. Thatch, Mrs. Thatch. <laughs> I thought it was it was actually probably quite sparse in terms of dialogue. I mean, I, I haven't looked at it to see, you know, word count compared to some of the other ones we've done. I think the middle of the episode yeah. is or the one you missed originally. Mm, yeah. There's quite a lot of action in that. Yeah. Really interesting. The valley scenes and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of dialogue in episode one, I guess. So you're, you're right. Yeah. Getting back to, yeah, Hail and Pace, it feels like, you know, I'm just trying to think of it from the point of view of anyone who 
either as you know a young fan coming to it not knowing who Hale and Pace were and not with any expectation or you know non-British Doctor Who fan I mean they had their mm. they had their moment and I suppose they served as stunt casting at the time but look back on now they could just be any couple of their their sort of minor minor key oh yeah minor key Holmesian double act I mean it's you not know, here's, here's great a couple of acting, characters but they're mm. they're small comedy parts so why not mm. give them to people who can get some value out of that yeah it's not it's not quite the same as because with ken dodd it feels like and I, <laughs> I love it i love it i love that bit of casting but but ken dodd comes on and if you didn't know who ken dodd was you would be <laughs> demanding to you know you would be demanding to know what the hell was all that about mm. whereas with whereas with this you kind of let it pass if you didn't know if you didn't know who helen base were i think you could quite happily just take that scene on face value. And it's not irrelevant, is it? Because it's a plot point where mm. the plot is is meandering in its eccentric mm. way towards the the meat of the story, no pun intended. Mm. <laughs> and yet, even in a seemingly irrelevant scene, which uh, they appear to be wasting even more time by telling a joke to each other, the, it's yes. twist, the joke is twisted mm. round and made to yeah. serve the main, the moral, which everybody in... Mm. We meet, strangely seems to have an opinion on mm. the idea of um ruthless unfettered dog, mm. dog competition yes it's only just occurred to me but given you know what you're saying about playwriting the entire day new ones involves the <laughs> involves the lead actor screaming the <laughs> screaming the entire <laughs> purpose of the plot into the sky and that's um twice yeah twice indeed mm. yeah just in case you didn't get it the first time, yeah. and then that's the um that is, yeah the the the, the delivery may leave something to be desired because yeah, yeah, what we always say about Sylvester when he has to shout. But on the other hand, thematically, actually making that the resolution of the the entire plot, and that's that you know that's the way you you have the plot mechanic that that's what brings him back to the TARDIS and wraps everything up at the same time. As, you know, I think that's quite neat actually. Mm. Yes, it's very well structured, and it makes sense as um, high concept science fiction mm. as well. Yeah. Now, apparently, I didn't quite get. Obviously, I watched with the um, closed captions with the production notes on. Apparently, the whole thing about the the fighting was the fighting of the animals of the of the cats was linked to the destruction of the planet. Was driving the destruction of the planet is a later is a later is a late addition. Right. Apparently it wasn't in the original scripts. Because they hadn't come up with an explanation for why the planet was... Mm. Mm. So the, pla- the planet was unstable. To give the story some urgency, but mm. they hadn't initially thought of it, they needed a reason for it. Yeah. And then when you link it together, it's that, it, it looks like that was meant to be from... It does, along, yeah. Doesn't it? The original resolution of the Doctor getting back home was just that that, that was the moment when the planet happened to blow up well that's some good script editing there which is um definitely feels like someone someone said well hang on this can all be that much stronger by linking it in mm. otherwise it would have been galaxy four planet blowing up for no no adequately explored reason there's a nice backstory uh hinted that off screen isn't there like in a lot of these things mm-hmm. some some of the stories in this era works better than others but uh and the ruins reminded me a bit of Radio Show in the Galaxy, but that it actually just hints at 
the, the, mm. the hint of this civilization that created these strange psychic cats mm. and then mm. their own creation um, got the better of them. It's, all, it's really all you need. Mm. Sketch explains away, justifies why we're watching what we are mm. 75 minutes, but also but in, in a, a way that gets you thinking. Mm. I've forgotten about that element of it completely, I have to say. There's, there's no attempt to explain how the, the fighting could cause the destruction of the planet, but I suppose you just have no. to accept that. Mm. I suppose it's supposed to be, well, not literally metaphorical. Yeah. In the stories, it's actually supposed to be real. But mm. I suppose that's the metaphor, isn't it? If mm. we, as John said, if we fight like animals, we die like animals. Mm. You well, take that, take that you to extremes, to. it mm. destroys your planet. Yeah, um, and turns you into Jesus. Charles, do you want to say anything about Hale and Pace in the background, just for younger younger listeners? Because you did a nice you did a nice chat about them, and maybe you could just. Oh, say I don't about know. Them. Well, we were. I can't remember who. One of you guys pointed out that they started out on alternative channel four Saturday night Saturday night live or Friday night live, one of those things in the mid eighties with their the management characters who were a couple of bouncers. Who, um, and then they got transplanted to ITV to the ITV for um, three or four increasingly successful series back at the time, didn't they? But yeah, they were they were like a background act to Saturday Night Friday Night Saturday Night Live on Channel Four with Ben Elton and Harry Enfield, hmm. and then they got catapulted into prime time Sunday evening lineup on London Weekend Television, and they were big. Big stars, mm. big sketches and everything. Yeah. So they joined that roster of comedians who all appeared in the, the, the Sylvester McCoy years. Richard mm. Briers, Ken Dodd, mm. and themselves. There are probably some others as well I've forgotten about. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I was just looking at this. It says says that they parted ways after they moved from ITV to, to BBC in 1999. So so once not only did the BBC... Oh God. Do yeah, for, for Doctor Who. They also, they also did for Hale and Pace, apparently. Not another example of that. Everybody, <laughs> I mean, everybody who was re remotely had any sort of anarchic sensibility on ITV moved the mm -hmm. BBC and was ruined. And by that, mm. I mean Kenny Everett, Roland Ratt, mm. and now apparently even Hale and Pace. <laughs> who were not really that anarchic, and ironically, but... it, worked the same, it worked the same way in reverse, didn't it, as well? More well, wise. Mm. Yeah. Okay. This is true. I shouldn't be. Yeah, it's a complicated. Some... Let's do a podcast on that one day. <laughs> yes, yeah. Some some acts are inherently BBC, and some are, yeah, Bruce's <laughs> big night, Bruce's big night stuff. Some acts are inherently BBC, and some are inherently Philip Schofield. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he should have stuck to the little fairy gophers, shouldn't he? Um... Oh. <laughs> But apparently, so good... Hale and Pace actually apparently are in three episodes of The Young Ones. All right. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, so oh, I so remember them at the BBC funeral. Then. Um, so I can't... <laughs> oh, do you? Okay. Uh, okay. I think they're in the same scene where um, uh, Olive Hawthorne from The Demons <laughs> says, do you dig graves? <laughs> <laughs> and... I can't remember who it is. He gets the, uh, gets the reply. They're all right, I suppose. <laughs> oh, God. I'm easy, please. God. 
that's my whole Tuesday night TV entertainment lined up now. Young ones as well. Mm-hmm. The, the the other thing that that, that made me um, smile about this first episode is that all friend, all Ace's friends have disappeared apart from Ange. I mean, it, it, I don't know if for the rest of you, but but when you go back to um, a reunion sort of thing, it's all it's all it's invariably somebody like Ange who's still around. You know, they're sort of a bit kind of dull and not not necessarily the the person that you really wanted to meet. But I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it, you, you don't you, you don't mind. I mean, I guess you'd be, yeah. be prepared to chat with Ange for a few minutes. But but yeah, it feel, feel, feel like all, all the characters have disappeared, and then she's just there. Uh, mm. Um, yeah, I, rec- I reckon she was always on the outside of that group anyway. <laughs> but possibly, by choice, let's not um, be too down on Ange. Maybe she was yeah. always a, the altern- most alternative one. I reckon Ace mm-hmm. was a bit try-hard, wanted to be alternative and had the jacket but and the attitude, but not really the... I don't really... <laughs> Whereas uh, Ange was, was the one who really was her own person. Was Ange the one collecting money? To- yeah. Um, protect mm. animals and stop cruelty to does animals. It say, does it say hunt saboteurs on a tin? I Something, that's right, yeah. Maybe they're allowed mm. to get away with that. You'd, that yeah. would be brand, looked on as too political now. Yeah, it's another another bit of the, um, yeah, more services the theme, isn't it? I guess it, it must say that because um, Spoons gets to um, comment on it. Mm. Are we still <laughs> going through this story in order? Well, I was just going to say that um, Sophie can really run. So in episode one, mm. she's—I mean, she she is charging around the playground in a slightly bizarre manner. But there are there are moments when I think she's the only actor in the history of the original series who actually looks like she can she can properly run. Mm. Uh, she gets quite some speed up. Yep, she gives Tom Cruise. What's another expression mm. for a run for his money? I don't want to sound like I was deliberately <laughs> going to say that. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. I mean, that playground mm. scene, of course, is mental. But Alan Waring gives such a good go at selling it. Yeah. Mm. He just makes lots of... Because you can't film that, it's ludicrous to have written that. But yeah. they yeah. Well, they give it a try, and there's lots of cl- um, you know, close-ups of Sophie selling the panic mm. as she... I mean, you know, it's pieced together in bits and pieces. Because I, all I could think about was how insanely difficult this must be. You've got people dressed as sheeters on horses <laughs> next to actors in, a, in quarries and children's playgrounds. I mean, it's, yeah. it's yeah. amazing it looks anywhere near as good as it does, frankly. Yeah. Mm, they must have had tracks down for some stuff as well. And, and it's recorded on video as well, isn't it, which isn't helping. Yeah. I mean, I know, mm. I know what Simon means about it looking cheap because if you just come at it cold, this is mm. the era when it's all on... You know, the exterior is on videotape, and we're not used to that. And it mm. looks, I mean, it is literally cheaper, but it was all about how you dealt with that back then. And some mm. of the directors were better than others. And I thought this one, <laughs> I always thought it looked a million dollars. They'd invented that thing about he's just thrown everything at it. Mm. That thing about coloring in the skies that they used yeah. in yeah. Mind Walk, they, they brought yeah. that back to make it look just little touches. All the little tiny things they put on the alien planet, Mm. and he cuts them in. So you, um, he cuts in random shots of the red sky rippling on the lake, and at the end, Mm. bits of fire bursting through cracks and crevices. It's all a patchwork which creates a mood and atmosphere. And yeah, you get a sense of the environment. Mm. I think the music is very good. Dominic, is it Dominic Glynn? Yes, he was Mm. my favorite from this era. I wish he'd got to do all of them. Mark Ayers was very good, but Dominic Glynn's scores 
all seemed very distinctive and very atmospheric mm. to me. <laughs> he wasn't afraid to rip things off at times. I never realized at the time how much is it Dragonfire rips off themes of aliens? But mm. don't don't write in if I'm wrong okay. about that. But here there's little um mm. to uh Sergio Leone Westerns, aren't there, when they're on the arid plains mm. of the Peter Planet. But other mm. than that, it's is generally keeps it helps create the right atmosphere. Hmm. Am I allowed to go off at a tangent a little bit? When we I've been cruel, I was making a joke about cheapness, and I've at the same time in the background I've been watching Colony in Space on the Blu-ray, and in the extras, in the specials, <laughs> there's an interview with Michael Bryan who directed it, and they filmed in a clay pit in Cornwall in awful weather in February with gale force winds and rain and everything, and all everything they tried to do creatively got blown away in the wind. And when they finally wrapped, one of the crew decided that they should all go to the cinema and watch Hello, Dolly. And they invited Michael Bryan along. And he said that after that experience of filming on the, you know, with the budget he had to work with, his first ever episode, a story of Doctor Who he got to direct, he sat there and watched Hello, Dolly and appreciated how technically excellent it was with the cast and all the effects and everything. And he sat in the cinema crying and weeping, oh. thinking that he'd never, he'd never be able to go through doing Doctor Who again. So having sat through Colony in Space and enjoyed it so much, that just puts in perspective what all these guys are working with. And, mm. you know, all these years later with Survival, Paul Paul's very good. He's pointed out how well the crew did with everything and the effects. It's just fascinating hearing it from his perspective. Mm-hmm. When I say it's about the camera work, I think part of the issue is we think of videotape as a, a, a live medium where you're, cutting between cameras recording what you've got going Mm -hmm. and film is your chance to be cinematic and get your raw materials and cut it together and in this era doctor who it really relies on directors treating their location filming with uh, shooting with video cameras as if it's film and getting and and putting it together in the editing room and Mm. i just think he was the best at that Mm. some of the um there's various shots uh, quite early on in greatest show in the galaxy i knew we were dealing with somebody had the head screwed on who <laughs> wasn't chris clough because there's <laughs> lots of interesting things with focus and, mm. and i i don't know if he technically is using different lenses i've no idea if that's even a thing on video cameras but you feel like you're dealing with somebody who's actually using mm-hmm. technology rather than just turning up and doing it on there you know with one camera just pointing it and getting the actors to do all the work mm. i think there's a bit of serendipity there that they because the week they were filming the quarry was blistering hot apparently and so and I think that kind of bleached out her and as much as <laughs> as much as by all accounts the, um, the actors and especially the cheetah people really really suffered in their in their yeah. costumes. But I think the fact it gives that it gives that bleached out hot feel to everything and then they add the video over the top of it. It does give you yeah, it does help sell the whole environment. It's given them lots of anecdotes, well. the actors, ever since. I mean, mm. mostly what they all talk about is how much fun they they had. It seems like every summer they went off recording and in the extreme heat. And even if they, mm. whether they were down at Lulworth Cove or mm. in a quarry, they were just bar- basking around, enjoying themselves. And mm. Sylvester's favourite anecdote is about the one actor playing a cheetah person who couldn't hack the costume. And have you heard him tell it? It gets slightly more outrageous every time he tells it. <laughs> the, the ultimate version is that this woman 
couldn't stand it any longer, ripped off her costume and ran off naked over the hills and was never seen again. <laughs> I, I've no idea if there's any truth in that whatsoever, but he enjoys telling it. <laughs> Shades of um, throwback to an unearthly child and the, um, the woman who couldn't, yes. couldn't bear to wear the skins. So are we going to talk about the cheater in the room? Uh-huh. Yeah. The costumes. Now, again, actors like to complain almost as much as fans. It depends. When an actor's proud of their work, then they like to, th- they like to tell us that the fans are ungrateful and don't appreciate it. But when they're, there's something they're not happy about, they can moan with the best of yeah. them. And they will... Lovely Lisa will tell us all day about how awful the, the, cap, the cheetah costumes are and how everybody hated them and how they... I can, does... Um, does Rona Monroe will join in. I think she. Yes. Was, yeah. Yes. The, 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 there's a quote here. I'll give you the quote, and then you can come back. So Rona Monroe says, "They should just have had cheetah eyes and a very faint pigmentation round of cheetah spots and big canine teeth." Right. And in fact, I think the actors that were cast, from what I was told, were doing all this wonderful expressive facial work, and then these puss in boots things were dropped on them. <laughs> well, there's two sides to that. Yeah, it may well have been. It probably would have been better if they'd done what she said. Did she put that in the script? It's entirely possible she did because people were always. I, th- I think, <laughs> probably in the old days, in the sixties and seventies, writers probably did not put much thought into mm. how you would they would realise their creations. Just wrote something unachievable in the script, took the money, mm. fly like a thief, and um, don't really <laughs> care. Mentioning whether, no names whatsoever. <laughs> don't have any opinion on whether it looked any good or not mm. afterwards. That's me writing off all of those wonderfully talented writers from two decades of the program. By this point, they're probably thinking <laughs> about it. Certainly in this era, I know they're thinking about it. And they're, they're thinking very mm. visually, and they're probably in this, filling their scripts with su- detailed descriptions and maybe even suggestions of how this should be done. So if they, mm. if she wanted, I was going to say humanoid, almost human-looking people with hints of cat, then it's rather silly of the production team not to go with that and i suppose it's very possible they did do that because somebody along one or more people in the pipeline might have said oh that's not going to be monstrous enough that's not going to scare the kids that's not very doctor Who-y. let's make them look like proper aliens on the other hand having gone down this route and made them look more like <laughs> real cheaters i don't think they're appalling it's doctor who yeah. i think they're being a bit over the top because they're, they're disappointment and they're very close to it, and very disappointed that they we didn't get, you know, the writers disappointed we they, we didn't get what she had in mind. The actors are not uh, are still bitter about what they had to um, be made to look silly and uncomfortable in these costumes. But yeah. what's on screen, I don't. Th- in the context of twenty six years of Doctor Who, I don't think it's that bad. No, I don't. I I always found it pretty good, mm. quite iconic, even you know, and it's. It's why to use that awful word, iconic. All that's really changed between this and the cat people in the new series is the technology's improved. You can do it more subtly. Mm. It's not as big and heavy and clunky and, and thick. Mm. You can do it with prosthetics now, whereas back then it, I guess, it had to be full mm. masks. It gets the idea. It gets the idea across. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, th- I feel like the cheetah people are kind of more convincing than the cat people. I don't. I don't know why, Ooh. but. Ooh. I mean, it's well. Well, I mean, it's not that, they, that the cat people in New Who don't look like cats. It's just like, why would they? Sort of. I don't know. I mean, mm. just too much like domestic cats, I suppose. Mm. The, there's that bizarre bit at the end, though, isn't there? When 
the cheetah person retur- turns into Lisa Bowman. Do we do, do we yes. understand why that happens? Is that a vestige of the fact that they were supposed to look human, and maybe she it was just supposed to be her eyes turning normal and the uh, canines disappearing? It, it's the re- would it have been the reverse of what happens to Ace and Midge and yes, the master? It could be. Mm. And it's yeah. and that's the thing you can't work out whether it's a unless I, unless I miss something in the dialogue when they have the bit in the you know the, the ruins. But that's the thing. I mean, you get the impression that's something generational that they're talking about that they've. I'm not sure if it's ever explicitly stated that the that the people of the planet have turned into cheetah people. But if if so, you get the impression it's yeah. happened over many yeah. generations. So it's a bit it's a bit odd. It completely threw me. I completely forgotten that. Oh, she turns human for the last <laughs> for her death scene. The idea would have to be that there were humanoid people on this planet who created. Um, I was going to say psychedelic. Uh, what's the word? <laughs> it created these cats that could do their bidding. They become yeah. animalis- animalistic and somehow merge with the cats. Hmm. That's the only... I mean, it doesn't really matter that this is not yeah. tied up with a nice neat... Oh, no, it's, again, only, it's, it's the only yeah. explanation for why... I mean, there, it is hinted at that the, the black cat that's wandering about in Perivale, what, turns into a cheetah person on a horse? Does it? Or are they just, or is it separate? That's the camera work seems to imply that it does, or maybe no, it's I just. Think, the one... I think the kitlings are a bit like a bit <laughs> oh. like the pilot fish. Pilot fish. Yeah, I think yep. they sort okay. of that, that makes more sense. Scavenger scouts and scavengers, because then you've got black cats on the cheetah yes. planet as well, and you a couple have. of things. Thirty-four years later, I get that bit. Now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I mean, if we're talking about clunky and so on, I think the, um, I think sadly the um, the kitling. Is a far worse offender than the. I'm not um, even not bothered about that. Than the cheesy costumes, in fairness, and I think I think it might be Mike Tucker says this on the, on the making of documentary. But you know, you had Sabrina the Teenage Witch was doing it whenever whenever it was ten years later, and with probably about ten times the budget, and they couldn't get they couldn't get a much better result when they needed a robot cat. And as he said, it's um, I think he's, he points out it's the fundamentals of the fact that. The guy who did it had done a puppet dog on for I Love It. For Bob Carrington. For the um, No, the um, I Love It, Norman Lovett's <laughs> yeah, okay. series, which uh, that was a blast from the past. I thought, oh, bloody hell, now I remember that. And he, they said, oh, could you do a cat? And he could, but um, but yeah, a lot of the a lot of the dog's success had relied on the fact you could stick a hand up its head and and just animate it by hand. And Mike Tucker was saying. Well, yeah, but you can't do that with a cat puppet. It just occurred to me that they should have hired a tiny child as a puppet. Yes, exactly. Yeah, or, it suddenly occurred to me after all these years. Made the it solution. oversized because you, mm. if you don't see it in context next to people, you wouldn't know that yeah. it was too. Yes, big. it's yeah. like yeah. it's like Doctor Who and Silurians all over again when Baronets <laughs> flush with all the possibilities of color separation overlay. Yeah. Makes the dinosaur a full-size costume with a man in it <laughs> at great expense, and then realizes that as he superimposed it onto the background, he could have made a tiny little puppet for a fraction of the cost. <laughs> but you oh, these solutions are so obvious to us now, aren't they? Perspective. <laughs> this this animatronic cat is small. This one is far away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it could so, have been like Stufa, the um, the, the small size <laughs> one, and the <laughs> and the giant grotesque. Yeah. <laughs> so, so apparently the the master is a late addition to the script. What do we think about that? About yeah, I was thinking about that while I was watching it, thinking how much. 
at first I was thinking oh. that oh, they haven't had to put much. You wouldn't have had to do that many rewrites. You could just put him in. Yeah, he just appears for you know a few seconds at the time here and there, doesn't he? Yeah. But then obviously by the last episode, it suddenly it seems to be all about him, and you wonder what the hell the story could be if he wasn't there. Mm. So, don't know. It feels like without him, in some ways, he becomes Basilette's position to to explain a lot of the plot mechanics. But I prefer, I'd probably prefer that to if the whole thing had just relied on Sylvester just having to figure it out from a, from a series of mimed tableau by the <laughs> cheetah people and whatever was, you know. If it was entirely Sylvester having to put, piece it together, hmm. how it all worked. That's a nice I other think, element, isn't it? Hmm. I think it's great, yeah, I think it's great. And, and yeah, again, it's funny. Apparently, I think Sophie was saying Alan Waring didn't really have didn't really do much directing of the actors, didn't have time to, or just kind of really? listen to it. That's interesting. Um, I, and maybe I, maybe I misinterpreted that, so, if, so you know, don't hold me to that. But I do find, if that's true, I find it interesting that you get two such dialed-down performances with Sophie and, and Tony Ainley, both really, you know, feels like they're underplaying it, and, yeah. I was assuming we had Alan to thank for the mm. newly restrained performance from Anthony which everybody yeah. commented on at the time. Mm. Or, well, we've heard so many things about his performance as the master that it was Nathan Turner who kept encouraging to overdo it in the early in his early days. Mm. Did he used to say more steel, or have I imagined that? More steel, Anthony. <laughs> but um, the way he plays it is entirely in tune with the master's position in the plot which is i think to show us just how dangerous this planet is mm. if it's got the ma- the master it can get yeah. the doctor as well it's not just um dangerous enough to turn these silly kids from perivale it, it's got its hooks into the um into a time lord gives it some stakes stakes no pun intended i what well, there aren't any stakes <laughs> in it sorry um, just cat food it feels like it could be turned quite easily into a forty-five minute new series episode. I guess, you know, it's it's a bit longer than that, but it, it, it feels like yeah. it's it's a sort of script you could do that with. Mm. Yeah, you take out everything that is not strictly necessary. I think it would be a very nice, tight story with plenty going on. Mm. And but and potentially, I mean, I, I'm not saying that this is a good example of it, but potentially it, there's. It's quite like Fear Her in the terms of, of of that kind of contemporary urban setting. Well, yeah, until you can, except you know without all the mysticism, which which is the only important part. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about the only one, the only thing I don't like about it, which I didn't understand or like in 1989, and I still don't. I don't particularly understand why the master and Midge's plan to deal with the doctor is to have a motorbike off which <laughs> is that e- is that even a thing and i don't understand why the doctor goes along with it and i don't understand and i fundamentally don't understand what anybody in that scene is thinking is going to happen I, it's mm-hmm. so oddly directed it's so it's so mm-hmm. bizarre it feels a bit like the literal cliffhanger from dragonfire like some there's been a misunderstanding somewhere um, i should have gone back and checked the novel actually because that would probably explain mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. That's because is the master going to get Midge to crash into the Doctor on a motorbike and kill him? Okay, fine. I can buy that, I suppose. 
it's not really a thing, is it? I was it? annoyed enough. It's, no, it isn't. <laughs> it's not a thing. It's not a thing people do. Yeah. They, is that a joust? They haven't got lances. Yeah. Oh, at the time, I was annoyed by the technicalities of it that we... It's, it's filmed very badly. It probably should have been in close-up or something. Oh, no, you'd have, seen it's Eddie, you'd have seen it's Eddie Kid then on the motorbike. <laughs> we, you've got those nice close-ups as they're pretending to race towards each other, and then they, we cut to a long shot of a massive explosion where they clearly... Mm. There's no debris of motorbikes or people being flung clear. No. And when the doctor appears seemingly half a mile away on a random mattress, it's just <laughs> surreal in all the wrong ways. Terrible flight. So problem. yeah, mm. so it's not it's not executed well. But I fundamentally don't understand anything about it, and it also doesn't really feel very Doctor Who. -y. Mm. It doesn't mm -hmm. feel the ultimate resolution to the problem of how to escape the cheetah planet, how to deal with the master. All that, all that's resolved very nicely and tightly. Whereas this is just a bit random. The sort of thing mm. I suppose I imagine would imagine Roger doesn't really understand Doctor Who throwing in there. <laughs> the sort of writer who thinks that Doctor Who's a friend where anything can happen, it doesn't really matter. We've we've had one or two examples of that over the last couple of years, but Ronan Munro doesn't seem like that sort of writer, so I don't know. I don't know what she was thinking. I should have checked. Giles does the research for me, though. And <laughs> did, did uh, no, sadly, not stretching as well as the. No, I was just. Oh, no, it's I was not just, just me. It's transcripts it? and trying to. Sorry? I'm not. I'm not mad, am I? Did do we not all? No, think, no, what, no. What's going on now? Yeah, and the, the master just says, you're, you're my hunting dog, the teeth of my trap, the teeth to destroy, which doesn't really... And they get, they get to the bother of getting two bikes. Is it another, is it another metaphor for survival? Yeah, the, this, the point mm. in the plot, the, the, what's happening here is that the Doctor, is that the Master has, as Giles just said, got this boy on a leash and he's going to use him to deal with the Doctor... And the doctor has to has to fight this battle himself. He can't risk Ace or anybody else getting hurt, so he's going to battle. Fine, but it's just where the motorbikes fit in. It's almost like there was something else written here that they couldn't film. Either the last to change of the motorbikes, or somebody said, "Why?" <laughs> or they were all having a late night brainstorming session after a few sherbets, and somebody said, "Motorbikes, let's do it on motorbikes." <laughs> I love I, motorbikes. I read about another change that was made i don't know if it was to the script or or rona munro's story but i think that was going to be set in a scrapyard when the motorbikes collided with each other that might have made more sense had it been in a scrapyard and also the doctor ending up in a sofa that would have made sense in a rubbish tip or a scrapyard sense, as well okay mm. Mm. instead of you know instead of visually if, nice though if is. he was cornered rather than appearing yeah. to volunteer to mm get on a bike but oh god what because i was thinking oh is it is it in is the master intending to turn ace like to trap ace is that his plan but it doesn't seem to be hmm. that and I, I can't quite work out what he's so what he's up to it's anyway. not a very doctorish thing to do but essentially all that aside he just kills midge by crashing into on a mm. motorbike yeah so are we not bothered by that Sylvester and all the writers were, were very keen in this era that Doctor doesn't kill people mm. gratuitously. In the original version, the Master killed Midge like directly, so Midge survived the motorbike and the, and the Master stabs him. Yeah, well, and then that just got turned into Midge dying. Well, that would have been better, but then it would have made the whole motorbike thing completely pointless. Mm. 
I mean, um, if we carry on this topic much longer, I'm going to talk myself out of liking survival. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just overlook that bit. I turn my brain yeah. off for those three or four minutes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 not a great spell that because you also get the terrible child actor just before that as well. But who <laughs> went on to greater things? Cat man. Yeah. Yeah. He's got well, funny well, eyes she... now. <laughs> She went on to a decent career, though. Yeah, well, Emmerdale Farm, Emmerdale, wasn't it? Right, Emmerdale, yeah. Emmerdale Farm and stuff, yeah. Yeah. As incidentally did Alan Waring. Mm. <laughs> Poor Alan Waring. He could have been a... Yeah. More than soap operas. He spent the next 10 years mm. in Coronation Street. And... So so what about what about um, Patterson, then? He, he sort of dies because he won't accept that anything's changed or whatever he, he, he's he's su- sucked into his own story and he won't uh he won't change his mind yes it's a largely fitting so so, so he um, is he isn't fitted, so he doesn't survive no exactly yeah okay he his own rules his own maxim for life has turned back against him as indeed his midges i mean they all and the master mm-hmm. everybody in his hierarchy of evil, mm. I guess they come up and, and then the doctor is the only one to break the chain by mm. refusing to fight. Yeah. Note. So, what happens to the master? Does he stay behind? Because. So, you survived. Come... Yeah, well, I see. Survived the cheetah planet. Oh, dear doctor. <laughs> know now I'm indestructible, etc. Yeah. Strange continuity from here into the TV movie. I mean, was I. Yes. Did we all think that when we, at the beginning of the TV movie, always got the cat eyes still? Yes, that's yes, true. And, yeah. that, and is that deliberate? Uh, I mean, that's the first thing I thought seven years later. Was, what a strange yeah. thing to pick up on. You mm. didn't, he's turned into a snake, but he's got the cat eyes. Well, I can't claim to have spotted this myself, but it, I think um, whoever did the whoever did the production notes points out that the um, Master's jacket invo- includes a rather natty snake belt buckle oh, right. on it. Which potentially ties into the whole master morphance weird snaky thing. Okay. In retrospect, oh yeah, with <laughs> in Fanon. But yeah, no, I, I certainly thought that at the time that that it was. And then with Ace, she's she has this sort of this awakening with Kara. She has this, uh, and this she she sort of discovers the animal side to her mm. nature. But then she still responds to the doctor in the or, or comes back to the doctor in the end so but but i guess we're saying that she's doing that that that's her own choice to come mm. back rather than having to be sort of being there slavishly or something like that is that yes. what that's about <laughs> uh yeah simon what else have you, have you got to tell us about this one uh, that's another you know, I just I was talking about falling out of love with Doctor. Who. Did I, at that time, Paul? You, you you were a fan of that era. Did you actually like the theme tune, the rejig theme tune, and the, what they did with the credits and everything? Not particularly. No, mm. I didn't like Kevin McCulloch. It's completely wrong for the program. The title sequence is not right because it moves around too much. Doctor Who title sequence should just go forward. They should have a momentum. Mm. They should just mm. be coming at you. They should be like the Tomorrow People. Just keep coming and coming and yeah. coming. Um, it shouldn't be spinning around. So, um, yes, it was wrong. What did I you don't make care whether the doctor winks or not. Uh, yeah. That's the least <laughs> of its problems. Just looking back, 
I don't know if you remember them. People used to get Bon Tempe organs for Christmas. Yeah. Mm. And that theme tune just sounded like something knocked out on one of those <laughs> by a by a YTS person. I, it's just, you know, that the, the go back to the classic era and well, this is part of the classic era, but the uh, the uh, that that theme's still iconic. It makes still get a tingle down the spine every yeah. time I hear that. And then when they revamped the show from two thousand and five onwards. That that's got lots of fantastic music and theme tunes, and they rejig it season by season or series by series. I forget which is which, and they do a great job of that. But it just seemed with eighties Doctor Who, it just seemed like someone was on a mission to kill it off <laughs> to me, yeah. having fallen in love with it in the seventies, and each week hoping it would get better and better, and it, it did for a while under Tom Baker, and then someone just seemed to be on a mission to to kill it off it's it's you know a lot of it i've misjudged because looking back now you've got the benefit of all the extras on dvds and blu-rays and closed captions and all the marvelous websites people have done where you can look and see and get perspectives and also you can listen to the actors involved as well and they they realized some of it was crap but they had a lot of fun doing it and they can laugh at themselves and you you see them completely differently in the role then Mm. It was going to be my first link, that actually, was that uh, both stories on show tonight have the worst titles and logo of both classic and new Doctor Who. And theme, and theme music, yes. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, this is, I was just about to say, that <laughs> Series 10 isn't without its elements of kazoo, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Has anyone else got anything more to say about this, or shall we draw this to a close? Hmm. Think I'm done. I've managed to be broadly positive, mm-hmm. which I wanted to be, while also being excoriatingly critical. <laughs> and two of my favourite things. So I'm happy and unhappy. Uh, there's been subtext, anyone? Well, well, yes, I think so, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to be the first to say it in case I just sound like a dirty old man, but of course there is. Well, so so, so continuing the quote from earlier, Kara mm. and Ace, there were whole amazing scenes between them, and for me that was supposed to be my lesbian subtext, and you can't see oh. it, says Rona Munro. <laughs> well, you can't okay. see it, because they're not actually... <laughs> mm. Yes, indeed. Getting up to no good. When you were going on about her awakening earlier, Giles, I was mm. fighting the urge to say a sexual awakening. But I, should, I, I should have done. Was going on about that, actually. I oh, was it. That, I was put, that was what put me in mind of it, though. I did. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Or maybe, maybe it was me earlier. But so, I, yeah. Well, it's, it's nice yeah. to hear that. It's nice to hear that. Rowan Momo herself says, "Yes." But 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 can can a can a girl and a cat have a lesbian subtext? Oh my god! What a minefield! What? <laughs> anyway, mm. I'm, on, not, I'm on, not going on, anywhere near that. On, on, on that, on that, uh, on that note, perhaps. Do you do you, do you need to kind of get a cup of tea or something for, for a couple of minutes before we move to the next one? I like a very quick break, if that's all right. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, a cup of.
of this here sketch, which I'll, I'll have it on record. There's no mention of Doctor in it this time. I was very careful to edit it out. Had it, in fact, <laughs> ever been in there? Might have been. I haven't read uh, it yet. Is there a, what, do I need to know what the tone is? What are we riffing on? What's... This is Hail and Pace. Thank you. Does anyone, does anyone have to do a Hail and Pace impression? Um, yeah, so this is this is basically the Hail and Pace scene, but with... Uh, so we've got to sound know. a bit more like Hail no, and no, Pace. No, 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 well, no well, not why really. Not? I mean, you know, that's what they were saying. Like, the shopkeepers, didn't they? It won't work if we don't sound like, we just sound like ourselves. I've got a character now. Can't go, I'm stuck <laughs> in it. I've gone too deep. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. We can give them a different... We can give them a different selection of um, vocal tics and hmm. and uh, speech impediments this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, for our listener, that, 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 the reviewer. We should do a guardian. You should do a guardian sketch, Richard, next time. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, it's all true. I mean, I, I I am a guardian reader. I can't. I cannot claim otherwise. So you too. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You 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 you're marvellous, darling. No, oh, thank you, thank you. What episode are we on? Seventy-eight. Oh, I remember the days when it was only episode one and two. Seventy bleeding right, eight. Set that recording again. Do you want to do a? Do you want to do a clap or? <laughs> well, why not? Shall I delete the okay. last six minutes? No, no, no. Let's pretend it sync happened. Sync up with the second one. Yeah, so three, two, one. Easy whizzy, let's keep this. I'd know it was that easy to get rid of him. I'd have been clapping more often. Oh, dear. <laughs> Okay. Uh, what's the secret of good comedy, Simon? <laughs> John's in MP3. My, yeah, it's set to Flack at the moment because the other podcast I do, the bloke always asks for Flack. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> no, it gives I, me a lot. I, I, gives me some yeah, Flack. If I don't provide I, I, it. I, I don't need any of your Flack, mate. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> what's this podcast called? Something who? Seventy-eight. Did he say? Seventy-eight. Yeah. Outrageous. 